Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. And uh, we're in a, a series called His Story and Our Story. And what we're looking at is we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're looking at the, the things that he did, the things that he spoke, how we interacted with people. And more importantly, we're asking, how does his life impact my life? What am I supposed to do? I mean, am I just supposed to read the Bible and read through all these stories and all oh, these are great things and great truth here? But, but am I supposed to read the Bible? Am I supposed to read the, the story of Jesus with this idea of, of how is this supposed to impact my life? And I think that's what Mark is doing. Mark is writing to people, Roman Christians. He's writing to them. So listen, I, I want to tell you about Jesus so that you will know how Jesus is supposed to impact your life. He, Jesus' life is, is relevant to your life. And in Mark chapter 3, the, the passage that uh, Diana read, we, we come to a summary, five, five verses of summary. It's, it's almost as if, as if Mark stops and, and he pauses in the midst of his, his testimony. He says, I, I want to just remind you of, of Jesus and what he's done. And as we look at these verses, 7 through 12, there's, there's a couple of key themes that pop out about the life of Jesus and what he's doing and the impact that he, that he had in all of the area and among the people. Let me, just, let me just draw your attention to a couple of these key themes because I think that's what Mark is doing here. First of all, one of the themes is this. Jesus is facing hostility. We see that in chapter 3, verse 6. There's this intense pressure from the religious establishment going on in the life of Jesus at the very, very beginning of his ministry. We don't know exactly how many uh, years we're into this ministry here, but, but from the very beginning, he's facing hostility. Verse 6 says this, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why, why did they want to kill Jesus? Why in the world would you want to kill a miracle worker? Why, why would you want to kill this guy who loved and, and had all of this compassion and did all of these wonderful, mighty, and powerful things? They saw that he would, he would heal people from demon possessions and leprosy. Why, why would you want to kill him? Because he didn't like the fact that he was a rule breaker. He didn't like the fact that on the Sabbath he did certain things. He did something with grain and then he healed somebody. He was a rule breaker. And, and to them, to the Pharisees, to the religious establishment, he didn't like the fact that he confronted them with truth in the way that they were living. And they, did, they had twisted God's word and made it all about rules and regulations and about if you do this, if you follow this way, you're going to be all right. And, and Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not that. It's, about, it's not about that. In their minds, it was all about, oh, I'm so glad that I'm not like this other person over here. And what Jesus is reminding them is that there's a lot of things going on, and I love you, and I care for you. And, and, and that's the opposition that Jesus is facing. At the very, very beginning, five controversies that Mark lines out, ending up in, in chapter 3, verse 6, with this idea that they want to come together and they want to kill him. So there's intense opposition to where he's at. There's a second thing, and it's this. It's his role with his disciples. From, the, from chapter 1, we saw that Jesus began to call people to follow him. Andrew, Simon, James, he began to, Levi, he began to call all these people, and, and they immediately stopped all that they were doing, and they began to follow Jesus. James and John, they're in the boat with their father-in-law, and they leave, they leave his father in the boat, and they abruptly leave and follow Jesus. So what's happening in the Gospel of Mark is they're tagging along after Jesus. They're seeing Jesus do all of these wonderful and mighty and powerful things, and they're just tagging along, listening, looking, learning from Jesus and what he's doing. So in, in the midst of all this intense opposition, Jesus is calling. We're getting an inkling of his purpose. He's, he's calling people alongside to, well, why, don't you, why don't you come with me? And I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I will give you a task that will radically alter people's lives. 
if you will follow me. I think there's another theme in this. And it's a theme that, that Diana mentioned. Jesus' popularity. Have you ever been to an event where people flocked to one or two people? For instance, the PGA, when the PGA was out at Bell Reef, I went there and I watched as people flocked around Phil Mickelson. They, they literally followed him from hole to hole. They would go from hole to hole and all of these people just flocked to see and get a piece of Phil Mickelson. And I think that's what we have here. When you look at the Gospel of Mark and you begin to start in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, there's, there's one or two words that pop out, and it's this. Crowds. Crowds. People. Crowds. Verse 7, it talks about a very large crowd. In other words, what Mark is saying, listen, Jesus is becoming more and more popular. People are following him. They want to be like him. They want to be around him. In, in verse uh, 9, it says this. He tells his disciples, listen, there's a lot of people there. And, and so what's going to happen is they're going to press around me. That's what the word means. They're pressing around him. They want to get near him. Uh, because they're pressing around me, I want you to have a boat ready. Because if the boat's ready, I'm going to get down in the boat, and then I'm going to put you out a little ways, and then I'm going to be able to teach and talk to the people from there. And so this is this intense idea of people and crowds coming from all around to want to be around the person of Jesus, clamoring for his intention. By the way, if you look at the, at the, the cities listed, it would be this. It would be a hundred-mile radius, like from here to Columbia, a hundred miles. People are, are coming to Jesus. And remember, they don't have cars. They don't have trains. They don't have planes. They don't have cell phones. They don't have text messages. They're hearing what's going on, and they're walking from Columbia all the way here because they want to be around Jesus because of what he has to offer them. And Diane mentioned something very true, and very true about the life of the disciples and the followers of Jesus and what was Jesus was experiencing this. The intense pressure and needs that, that people had. Verse 8 says this, When they heard all that Jesus was doing, what was Jesus doing? Meeting the needs of hurting people. People had very, very serious issues in their life. Demon possession, leprosy, a paralytic, severe skin disease. These people had horrible, horrible conditions in their life. And they were coming to the one who could offer some kind of relief to them. Listen, I would imagine that nothing gets our attention more than pain and suffering. When our bodies are good and our bodies are functioning, life is good. But something happens on the inside, something happens on the outside, something happens to our body, God gets our attention in a mighty and powerful way. And there's no doubt that these people had all of these needs and they wanted to get to Jesus because they, he had something to offer them. But I think there's something about the nature of Jesus Jesus knew that there was another dimension of life that was much more important than our physical needs. Listen, my body, it not being able to, to, to be broken and my body able to function, there's no doubt that that's important. But do you realize there's another dimension of our lives that's absolutely more important than our physical dimension? And that's the spiritual dimension of our lives. And, and that's what Jesus 
came to, to remind us of. It's not just this physical world. There's another dimension of our lives that we need to be rightly related to our Creator so that when we pass away, we can enter into the joy and the wonder and the beauty of who He is forever and ever in all eternity. And, and Jesus taught that to the people. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending the 12 out. He's going to send them out in, little, in pairs. And I want you to go out and I want you to teach and preach about the gospel. I want you to heal people. And then they come back and they give this report. But, but Jesus gives them instructions before he sends them out. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, notice what Jesus says to his disciples. He says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Jesus was doing in a kind of a backhanded kind of way was reminding us of the value of the human soul. There's no doubt our bodies are important. And, and, and someone could take my life, someone could kill me, someone could take my life, or I could die of old age. But at some particular point in time, I'm going to pass away. And the reality is, the one that we need to be, fear is the one who can take my soul, my spirit, if you will, and send me and cast me into a place called hell for all eternity. He is the one that we are to, to be afraid of. And what Jesus is reminding disciples is this. There is another dimension beyond the physical aspect of your life that you and I need to be rightly related to God. We need to have our sin forgiven of us. And by the way, you may pursue all of the things of life, and it will still not feed your soul. That's why in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said these words, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So I, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to go away for a couple of weeks to travel, and I'm going to take a book with me. And the name of the book is called uh, Lennon, Dylan, Allen, I'm sorry, Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. And it's written by a pastor by the name of Greg Laurie. I don't know if you know him. He's a pastor of a church in uh, Riverside, California, Harvest Christian Church, Harvest Church, and it's, it's a big church. So Lennon, Dylan, Alice, th these are all rock star kinds of people. And his point in the book that he's going to make, uh, I've kind of read a little bit of a preview, is this, that, that there are so many people in the music industry, so many people in the rock music industry, some of them grew up in church. And some of these people had literally had it all. And yet they found that there was something deep inside of them, something wrong with their very, very soul that they couldn't reconcile with. And they ended up turning and trusting Christ. I don't know exactly who, I don't know all of them. I know that Alice Cooper came to faith, I believe, under R.C. Sproul's teaching. Anybody know who Alice Cooper is? That guy's a wild guy. He's a wild man. And yet the grace of God grabbed a hold of his life. Why? Because he knew there was something deep inside of him that, that caused him to be in angst, to cause him to, to wonder, is there something else that I need to be looking for? Most of us are familiar with a guy by the name of um, Ray Romano. Um, in, in May of 2005, they filmed the last episode of uh, the TV show, um, Everybody Loves Raymond. And he walked out on that last show, and he addressed the crowd. All right, this is May of 2005. And this is what he said. He said that he had received, before he had left one town to go to another, uh, to come to, to film, uh, his brother stuck a note in his luggage, and this is what he said. My older brother Richard wrote in this note 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Said a cheerful Romano. He said that at that time he was going to now go and work on his soul. That guy was making a million bucks per show. And he recognized that a million dollars per show does not feed something deep inside of you. There's something deep inside of us that longs to be connected in a different way. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to say, listen, I can bring fulfillment to your soul by forgiving you of your sin, by offering and promising something to you that you could never achieve on your own. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to meet the needs of the people, not just the physical needs. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from what you're doing, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I will give you all that you need for life. And that's the summary that we're looking at here. Mark is offering this summary of hostility, this summary of, of, of the disciples being together, the summary of the growing crowns, the personal demands, and one last dimension of life. And you didn't even think about it this morning. You may not even thought about this week. There is another dimension in which we operate in called the spiritual dimension. And the Bible talks about a thief. The thief comes to kill, to rob, and destroy. And that's what he chooses to do. He wants to destroy the very fabric of our lives. And Jesus dealt with that in an intense way. Look at verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits, Mark writes this, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. We see the same response in chapter 1, verse 24, where, where the, the evil spirit in the synagogue responded, you are the holy one of God. These, these evil, demonic beings brought bodily injury. They brought psychological damage. They brought spiritual harm to people. And yet, what do they do? They fall in submission to the very words of Jesus when they see. Why is that? Because they recognize there's something mighty and powerful and different about the unique person of Jesus and what he's done. And, and what does Jesus do when he sees these demonic beings responding in such a way? He tells them to be silent. He tells them to be quiet. Do you ever wonder why he does that? Why he did that? I mean, wouldn't you want Jesus to get his name out there? Wouldn't you want Jesus to get who he is and the things that he did? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want that to get out there? Look at all the crowds. Listen, what determines ministry is how many people you have, right? When crowds are coming, that means a good thing is going on. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus is withdrawing from the crowds. Why is he doing that? I think it's the same reason that he's confronting the evil spirits. And it's this. What you believe about Jesus is absolutely critical to your future. And what Jesus wants to make sure that people know is that we have been separated from God because of this thing called sin, that we need to be reconciled to a holy God, we need to repent, put our faith and trust in Jesus, and that needs to happen to every person. It's more than just believing in Jesus as a healer or a good man or a wise man or something else. We need to know and recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world who came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And what the demonic beings want to do is, yeah, they're going to acknowledge that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Why? Because they already know that. 
Bible talks about the demons believe in who he is. That doesn't mean that they're saved. James talks about that. And so what Jesus is absolutely wanting people to know and recognize is this. You need to have an accurate understanding of who I am because your future depends upon it. And there is this spiritual battle going on in the world. Let me just read 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We're going to put it up here. Notice what it says. We know that we are the children of God, we are, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We are God's family. We are God's children. We are protected. The Spirit of God lives inside of us. Yet we go out and we do battle on another front. The, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And we wonder why our culture is changing and we wonder why we see things going the way that they are. Why? Because there's this spiritual influence going on. I think what Mark wants to do in, in these verses here is to remind us of this. He's going to make a major transition coming up. He's going to make an absolutely major transition. But I think what he wants us to do right here is he wants to remind us of the reality of the world, that you and I are in this world, that you and I live in the midst of a broken world, and in the midst of the broken world are broken people, the hurting people, the people with needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, social needs. There are people out there with needs. And what we need to recognize and remember is in the midst of the chaos, God, God, in the form of Jesus Christ, came to this earth to live and tabernacle and be with people. He wasn't distant. He wasn't far. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all of that, God comes to earth to what? To live among it. And think about all that Jesus experienced. Persecution, hatred, his own family disowned him at one particular point in time. The Gospel of Mark talks about his, they're plotting to kill his life. All the things that people said, family abandoned him, persecution. And, and all of that is before he's going to be mocked and beaten, before he goes to the cross and, and dies in a, in a horrible and cruel way. And I think what Mark is reminding of is this. There is nothing that you are going through in life right now that Jesus doesn't know about. That Jesus is a man well acquainted with pain and suffering. I think that's what Mark's doing. I think that's what Mark is reminding the people is. Not only does he know what's going on in your life, but this mighty and powerful God has the ability and the power to make changes in ways that you cannot think or imagine. If I will simply give my life to him and I will trust him, you may not understand it all. It may be difficult. And I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with an issue with my brother. I, I don't understand it all. I don't get it. Well, what am I going to do? Run? Abandon? No, in the midst of life, I'm going to say, God, I, I don't understand it all. But I know that you do. And I know that you will help me. And you will help me to reconcile it. In the book of Hebrews, we get an incredibly beautiful description of Jesus. He's not the Holy One. He's called a high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. L let me just read the text. And I want you to think about where you're at in life. I want you to think about what Jesus offers to us. Notice how the author refers to Jesus. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Think about what you did last week. Think about getting away from stuff, man. Remember as a kid, you, you thought you could get away with stuff. 
and mom and dad always found out, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom what we must give an account. We're going to all stand before God and give an account for our lives. That's why you need to know Jesus. Therefore, since we have what? A great high priest. What a beautiful description of a high priest. What does a high priest do? He represents the people on behalf of God. Every one of us are priests right now, but Jesus here, he's called our high priest. And what is he going to he's, he's going to be our representative before God and who he is and what he's done for us. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Don't give up on your faith. Don't quit. Keep moving forward. It could be hard. It could be difficult. But don't give up. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. I can never tell you, whatever you're going through in life, the loss of a loved one, I, I can never tell you, even though maybe it's a situation of death and you've lost a loved one, and, and I've lost a brother, I, I can never tell you, I understand fully what you're going through. I, there's no way that I can do that. But notice what the text says. It says, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows exactly what's going on. Like nobody else does. Because he experienced it. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he knows the pain and the anguish that you're going through at this particular point in time. And notice what he says in verse 16. Response. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I believe what Mark is simply doing here is he's reminding us of the pain and the suffering and the angst of Jesus' life. And then he's reminding us of, of all of those circumstances, all of those things that Jesus experienced, all of those things that these people experienced. That's the reality of life. And yet Jesus comes and offers himself as a way for us to say we can look to him and trust him for life. And then what he's going to do? He's going to tell us how he's going to do that. The first verses are by the, are by the lakeside. Summary of the lakeside. But we're going to move now to a mountainside. Where what we're going to have in these verses is, is the strategy for dealing with hurting, broken people. And you know what the strategy is? Jesus is this. Come be with me. I'm going to send you out. Take the message of the gospel out and be around and be around Christian people so we can help each other. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, what Jesus does is he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you how we're going to meet the needs of all those people. Look at verse 14, the transition. They moved from the lakeside, they moved to the mountainside. He appointed 12, designating them as apostles. The word appointed means this. It means to appoint someone to a position. President appoints something to a position, Right? president comes into power, I'm going to appoint this person to this position. This person. But, but the word has a different meaning. It has another meaning. It means this. It means to create something or to, or to make something. So, so what, what might Jesus be doing with the apostles and the disciples here? He's forming a new community. He's forming a new community. I'm, I'm going to create, out of the apostles, out of these 12 men, I'm going to create the very foundation of which Christianity is going to continue on for generations and generations to come. What he's establishing here is the beginning of the church. Church is going to begin with these 12 apostles. 
kind of in the, in the, in the aspect, if you will, of the, the 12 tribes. God is, is making a transition from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I'm going to make a transition into these 12 apostles. And upon the 12 apostles and their life and their teaching and their miracles, all that they, they've done is they are going to be the foundation of the church. And he's appointed them. Why? Because he's creating something new. The church. People called out to follow him. So, what does he do? What does Jesus do with these men? How does he teach them? How does he train them? Three principles and then we're done. This is how his story interacts with our story. Number one, verse 14, you got to be in the presence of Jesus. you got to be in the presence of Jesus. Notice what the text says. It says that they might be with him. Why did God choose you? To love him, to honor him, to glorify him. But he chose you to be in a relationship with him. And what he wants is this. He wants to be with us. And so he calls these guys and says, listen, guys, I've got an incredible task for you. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers as men. You think you know what's going on. You think you know what the future holds. But you have no clue. You don't have any idea what's going on. But now I want you to do for three, three and a half years. I want you to just follow me. And I'm going to teach you and I'm going to train you. But you have got to be with me. And that's the first principle we learned here. God wants us to be with him, to be in his presence. By the way, if you look at the Luke passage, uh, Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus actually spent the night in prayer. He went out and he began to pray. He spends the night in prayer alone with his heavenly father. Why? Because he is going to choose 12 men to carry on the ultimate mission of the church, apostles sent ones, to go out and be sent to take the message of Jesus out. Think about it. How hard is that to do? We get so busy with our life. We get so busy with so many things, we forget that I need to be in the very presence of the Lord and to stop and absorb and allow him to pour into my life through the word of God, to allow him to pour into my life through the spirit of God, to allow him to pour into my life through the people around me. Jesus wants us to be with him. We have got to be intentional in our spiritual lives. We've got to be intentional. It's not just let go and let God, as some people believe, but I can be intentional about the things in my life, about getting up early or spending time with the Lord, about what I do with my finances, about where I serve. I I can be very intentional with those things. And that's what the disciples were learning from Jesus. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says this, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Why? Because he didn't do anything. But the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Let's continue to be diligent in spending time in the presence of the Lord. Can I encourage you? What's your plan this, this summer? Do you have a plan, a spiritual plan? I mean, summer's kind of that time when you get to do some different things. Do you have, do you have a spiritual plan? Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a book that you need to, to read. Maybe it's a book of the Bible that you need to read. Maybe it's a psalm that you need to read. But, but, but look at your life and evaluate your life and take a spiritual direction for your life. Moms and dads, what's the spiritual direction for your family this year? Be intentional about your life and about specifically about spending time with Jesus and who he is. By the way, in the book of Acts, some 40 weeks after this, remember Peter and John in the book of Acts? They're out there, they're teaching and proclaiming in the name of Jesus. In Acts, I think chapter 4, verse 13, they recognize Peter and John as people having been with Jesus. They had boldness. Why did they have boldness some 40-something days after uh, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Because they had been with Jesus. When we spend time in the presence of Jesus, 
The Word of God and the Spirit of God to get us the boldness that we need. Number one, spend time with Jesus. Number two is this. Be in the presence of unbelievers. Be in the presence of unbelievers. It, listen, it's okay to be around unbelievers. I, I would encourage you to be around unbelievers. I have family members who are not saved. I pray that God would bring people into their life who would be able to communicate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that all the time. We are invited to be around unbelievers. Look at verse 14. That he might, what, send them out to preach. What's he going to do? He's going to send them out. By the way, the root word of that word has the idea of apostle. Apostle is a sent out one. What is he doing? He's sending out these people, sending them out with the message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm sending you out to what? To preach. To preach what? About Jesus. About repentance of sin. About who he is. Not that he is only a miracle worker, but he can offer forgiveness for your very soul and transform your life on the inside. We are the ecclesia. You know what the ecclesia means? We are the called out ones. You're called out to serve and to take the message of Jesus. Can I just ask you a question? Is that, is that a desire of your heart? Man, I hope it is. And I mean that. The reason I say that is because it is so easy for us to get isolated and insulated from, from an unbelieving world and, and people. It's really easy for us to, to want to be around our own Christian friends. And, and I get that. But we have neighbors and we have friends and we have people out there and they don't know Jesus and they want to know Jesus. And what God is doing, God is placing you in opportunities and placing you in situations where you have, might have the opportunity to live out the light of Jesus Christ and to be able to communicate about who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and that's what, what's happening here. He's sending them out to preach the message. And, and that's what you and I have the great privilege of doing. Can I just challenge you as you spend time with Jesus? Will you pray that God would open a door for you to speak the mystery of Christ? Christ, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Because that's what I'm praying in my life. And as you have those opportunities, will you let me know when you tell me? Because I want us to be communicating about who Jesus is and what he's done. I want us to be able to communicate about the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. Number one, be in the presence of Jesus. Number two, be in the presence of unbelievers because that's what he's sending them to do. Number three, I, I want you to be in the presence of believers. And this is what I mean. Look at what happens in verses 16 to 19. I'm going to read the names of these men. And I want you to think of it in the context of this. Hope Church exists because of these 12 men. 11 plus 1. Hope Church... This is the foundation of the church that I'm going to read here. Peter, really? He's the guy that denied Jesus. James and John, sons of thunder, they go into Samaria. I, I love the story. They go into Samaria. Samaria doesn't respond. You know what they want to do to the people? Lord, you want me to burn them up? You want me to just call down fire from heaven and burn them up? What kind of missionary? That, that's James and John. I, I love that story. Because we're not any different. And then some of the guys that we don't even know about. But we do know the last guy. He's Judas the betrayer. You can be close to Jesus and still not know who he is. Let me just read the names. Beginning of verse 16. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee. 
and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boragonis, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon of Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who, who betrayed him. I, I mean, you have the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. You have the, the transformation of, of Peter, James, and John from the things that's recorded in the Gospels and how they, they change radically. You, you have a group of, of misfits when you think through of all the different things that they did, all the challenges that they had in life. By the way, they could be in their early 20s this morning. We had the, the privilege of bringing all of these people up here and, and to ask that God would speak to them in a mighty way as they go out and serve. John gives you testimony that, that going on a mission trip at the age of whatever he was radically changed his life. We have the great privilege of pouring into the life of other people so that they can go and share the message with others. And these were young men that went out and radically changed the world. There's a pair of brothers. By the way, there's natural tension. Think about this. You have the zealot, Simon the zealot, right? He hated Rome. And then you have Matthew the tax collector. What does he do working for Rome? Talk about two people in polar opposites. They were radically different from each other. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, gave them a vision beyond themselves. Come to me and I will make you fishers of men. And you will radically change the world. This morning in our class, I know I need to end. Um, This morning in our class, there's a gentleman there. And he said, in 1974, he came to know Jesus in, in Mellis. He didn't give all the details, but he came to know Jesus in 1974, as a child in 1974. The message of the, of the gospel from the apostles over the hundreds of years came to the city of St. Louis. And a little, a little church, a little house church started in the city of St. Louis. Then it grew. And, and then in the 1950s, early 1960s, it came out from the city and it came here to Hope Church. And, and so here we sit here. And we have the great privilege of doing something that is absolutely phenomenally incredible. And that's taking the message of the gospel to other people. Lord, thank you for changing my life. Lord, thank you for changing Steve's life in 1974, introducing him to the gospel and bringing him to a point where he knows you personally. Father, thank you for our young people. Father, I pray that as they go on this mission trip that you would give them a vision. Lord, not just for themselves, but for you. And God, I pray that you would burden all of our hearts with the message of the gospel. Father, I thank you for those who I I know are just so active in in sharing the message of Jesus. And and God, I I want to be similar in their heart and their passion. So, Father, I pray for myself on my trip. I pray for all of us that you would allow us to speak the mystery of Jesus. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen.